Okay, Philippians uh, chapter 3. We've been working our way through the book of Philippians. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9, but we're going to zero in on verses uh, 7 through 9, which are kind of the crux of the passage. I'm going to read those in a moment, and I'm going to read and teach from the New Living Translation today. Uh, I've only ever done that one other time in my whole history of teaching and preaching. I usually teach and preach from the New American Standard Bible, but the New Living Translation sometimes is just so much more simple and clear than the New American Standard or any other translations, in my opinion. And, and this passage especially, in this passage in front of us, verses 7 through 9, is one of the most important passages in all of the New Testament. So it's incredibly important that we get this, and I think the New Living Translation just nails it and says it really well. So I'll teach and preach from that today. I realize that most of you don't have that translation, so we'll put all the verses up on the uh, screen so you can follow along. We're going to read verses 7 through 9 in a minute, even though we're looking at 1 through 9. So when we read 7 through 9, they're going to feel a little out of context, a little disjointed, um, because they have to do the previous verses. Don't worry, we'll get to the previous verses and tie those in as we're teaching through verses 7 through 9. Just know this, that when Paul in verse 7 references these things, okay, that he's kind of considers worthless now, he's talking about qualities and attributes that he had going on in his life that he previously trusted in to make him right with God, okay? And now he's calling them worthless and he's talking about how he actually became right with God and how we actually become right with God. So really important stuff. Starting reading here in verse seven of Philippians three, New Living Translation, Paul writes and says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right depends on faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful words before us. We ask that you would give us understanding of them, that you'd open up our hearts and our minds to comprehend God, what you have done in Christ for us and what we are free from and free to experience because of that. So Holy Spirit, come and teach us, come instruct us, make us to comprehend these things and to commit ourselves to these things, to rely upon them. Lord, we thank you for those among us who want to consider themselves Christians. We're so thankful that they're here. We ask that they feel welcome in your presence and in our presence, and we welcome their presence and ask that they would hear, God, what you, their creator, wants to say to them today. And that for all of us, these things would be life-changing. And Lord, I feel like my body's going to fall apart. We ask that you keep it together and that you please anoint me to teach and preach this truth in a way that glorifies your name. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Paul ended that passage that we just read by saying, God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. Key word, important word, important phraser. God's way of making us right with him, sinful, fallen, rebellious humanity. God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. 
Important word, faith. But a mushy word, kind of. It's kind of a mushy word in popular culture. And even within Christian culture, it's gotten a bit mushy. Like in popular culture, people will say, you know, you just got to have faith or just keep the faith or, or just keep on believing. Never really explaining what we're supposed to have faith in or what that looks like, what it means. Just kind of this mushy, hey, have faith. And people even write songs about it. It doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. So it's kind of mushy in popular culture. And even in Christian culture, you know, one of the things that we often hear is if you only had enough faith, uh, that, you know, that's kind of part of it, but that's not really all of it. And it kind of clouds the issue more than it clarifies the issue. And so though this word is incredibly important, it's a, it's a little bit mushy in Christian culture, a little bit mushy in popular culture. So we, we want to get a clear idea of what it means. And on a very basic level, to have faith is to believe in something or someone, okay? To have faith in something or someone is to believe in something or someone on a very basic level. Now, if we're defining faith that way, to believe, then, then it's common. And faith is common. It's common and it's simple. Everybody has faith. It's not like beauty or intelligence or extreme giftedness. Those are things that not everybody has. All of you people have all those things. All you guys are beautiful and intelligent and gifted, but not everybody else. They don't have those things. But faith is more common than even beauty or intelligence or gifting. Everybody is able to and does believe in something. Okay, everybody has a faith of some sort. Therefore, you got to push the question a little further, not just what is faith. Okay, it's believing, but the question then becomes not do you have faith, but what do you have faith in? Okay, that, that would answer the, the mantra of popular culture. You just got to have faith. Okay, but what, what are you going to have faith in? Are you going to have faith in yourself? You have faith in science, like Esqueleto from Nacho Libre? You know, I only believe in science. So Nacho baptized him right there. That was his belief, his faith. What are you going to have faith in? Chance, fate, God? I mean, there's a lot of different things that you could believe in. And it might be all of those things according to certain circumstances and times. But you see, there's an issue in the text in front of us that's pressing. Again, Paul said God's way of making us right, relationally right with him for all of eternity depends on faith. So it's believing, it's believing in something, but it's not just believing in anything. It has to do with being right with God. So what do we believe in to be right with God? Now, if we're going to say, what do we believe in? Then, then we realize that faith has to have an object, right? That's where some of Christianity messes it up, you know, if you just have faith, this will happen. No, you have faith in an object. So, so what is, what is your, your faith in? Faith has to have an object. So then we want to be able to finish the phrase, when it comes to being right with God, I believe in, fill in the blank. When it comes to being right with God, I have faith in. And lots of people in our culture, in our towns, would, would answer that lots of different ways. And here, Paul is saying, as an example, that he used to have faith believe in his own efforts in order to be right with God. He says again in verse seven, I once thought these things were valuable. His own efforts and assets, the word they're valuable in the New American Standard is gain. Okay, at one time they seemed to be 
assets to them. And then they're in the plural. There's something that he's accumulated. He sees them as positive at one time, valuable, gain, his own efforts and qualities. Okay, hold on to that thought for a second. And then let's develop the idea of faith a little bit further. Okay, it's not merely that Paul believed in his own efforts and qualities. It's not merely that he believed that they existed, but faith is more than just believing. It's actually trusting. Okay, now, now, now we're getting a little bit closer, right? It's not enough to just believe. Paul's not saying that, you know, I used to believe in my own efforts. He didn't just believe that they existed, but he trusted in them. So faith is actually trusting in something or someone. It's not merely believing. And we have this sort of faith even commonly every day in all sorts of things. We, we trust in all kinds of things. Just to get to church this morning, some of you went out to your car trusting, having faith that it would start, right? Someone laughed, their car didn't start, you didn't have enough faith. <laughs> if only you had more faith, your car would have started. When you were driving on the freeway, you trusted, you had faith that the person in the lane next to you was going to stay in their lane. Now, there's certain reasons you have this faith, right? It's not blind faith. There's certain reasons you thought your car would start and they would stay in their lane, but that was faith. That was trusting in something or someone. When you pulled up to your first stoplight today, you had faith that the lights would change in the right sequence at the right time. I mean, you trust that. You didn't even think about it. When the light turned green, you just went. You didn't even second guess it. You had had total faith, trust in that. So this kind of trust, this faith is common. Paul had that kind of trust in his own accomplishments, his own efforts, his own history when it came to being right with God. He thought that those things would be enough. And those things for him are spoken of in verses five and six. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to Jewish law. And I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Now, he, he's not in error there. He's not saying that he didn't sin. That's not what he means when he says, I I obeyed the law without fault because the law made provision when you did sin to bring certain sacrifices and things for which you would atone for your sins. But he's saying, I did everything right, even from my birth concerning my parents, everything right from his perspective to be in right relationship with God. Now in our ears, those things don't seem like much and they seem very foreign and they are. We're cultures removed and millennia removed and it's, you know, Things are different for us now. But in, from his perspective, those were a big deal. Like, he really was pulling it off in a radical way. Um, we don't have time now to dive into what all those things mean. They're obviously Jewish and Old Testament historical, and it'd be fruitful and fun to study those things. We can't do it right now. Suffice it to say, for our purposes this morning, that what Paul is communicating is that as far as the possibility of impressing God, if there is such a possibility, Paul had a lot going for him. His parents did the right thing from the beginning. He was from the right nation. He was from the right tribe. He was a cream of the crop among his people. Religiously, he was part of the most devout, serious, committed group. He was willing to do anything for his beliefs. And he's willing to do anything concerning things that he didn't believe. 
That's why before he's a Christian, he persecuted Christians. He had good morals, good behavior, and good religious observance. From his perspective, it was about as good as it got. That's why he says in verse 4 now, I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I even more. So he's testifying here that at one time, he believed in, trusted in, had faith in his own efforts, history, behavior, in order to be in right relationship with God. He really did. He trusted in those things. I have these things to my credit. Therefore, I'm accepted by God and will always be accepted by God. And me and God are good. Now, a lot of you think that very same way. Based on history. Well, my, you know, I come from a long line of Christians or Catholics. My grandma went to church and you know, my mom and dad went to church and I occasionally pop in or, you know, I, I said this certain prayer at a certain time or I do these certain things or, you know, I'm a, I'm a good person. You know, I've got this stuff going for me. I'm, I'm obeying the law. So then you, you think you're right with God. A lot of us are, are just like Paul used to be. But look what Paul says now. Again, in verse seven, he says, I once thought these things were valuable or gain in the New American Standard. But I now consider them worthless or loss in the New American Standard. I once thought that they were assets. It turns out they were liabilities. In view of what? How did they become liabilities? Because of what Christ has done. Okay, so he just had this whole paradigm shift when he met Jesus, this entire paradigm shift from life is about and eternity is about and being okay with God is about my efforts and what I do and how good I am. Two, it is all about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. That's a total change. That's a radical change. That's a complete about face. It's not about what I can do or have done. It's about what Christ has done for me. And so in verse nine, then he says, I no longer count on my own righteousness. He doesn't rely upon that. He doesn't put his weight upon that anymore. Righteousness meaning being justified before God. God declaring that you're innocent, that you're okay. Having right standing before God. He says, I, I don't count on my own merit anymore to be right before God through obeying the law. Instead, rather, I become righteous. Okay, it's not merely behavioral, it's transformational. I actually become right before God through faith in Christ. Because God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Belief, trust in what? In who Jesus is and what he's done. That Jesus died in our place on the cross to pay a price that we could not pay in and of ourselves. The debt of our sin, our offense to God and before God. We couldn't pay for that. And so Jesus paid that for us with his death on the cross. 
and then rose to life again to give us brand new life. Not just extended life, eternal life, but a different quality of life. A transformed life. He actually made us new creations. You see, no matter what you do, you can't make yourself new. <laughs> no matter how much plastic surgery you get, right? You see people that try to do that, like in Hollywood and stuff, in the mags, and they're getting old, but they're trying to stay new, and it's disgusting. <laughs> like, just get old already. I'll love you old. I'm ready to accept you as old, but they're trying to, like, stay new, and it's just wrong, right? Well, we, 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 no matter what we do internally, externally, we can't make ourselves new. Only Jesus can do that. It's not anything we can do. It's what he has done on the cross in our place for us because God loves us. And that's the gospel. Gospel means good news. That's the good news. Is it even things that you thought like, yeah, these are valuable. These are assets. These are gain. I'm doing pretty good. In comparison to, in light of what Jesus has done, liability, worthless, loss, just not even on the map. Just forget about it. It's all about what Jesus has done for us. And what he has done for us makes everything else and everything we might try to do to make ourselves okay before God. And we all have a sense that we need to be okay before God, whether it's now or on your deathbed. All have a sense that somehow we need to be okay before God. And anything that we could do in and of ourselves is not going to cut it. It's only what Jesus has done for us. That's why, again, Paul says in verse 8, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ. He had to cease to trust in those things so that he could gain Christ. You see, it's not both. It's not, oh yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. And okay, yeah, what Jesus has done, I'll bring that into the equation and now we're really good. He said, no, that other stuff had to be garbage in my mind. I had to discard it in order to gain Christ. I couldn't trust in it in any way. Had to literally be like, hey, that's worthless. It's only through what Christ has done for me. You see, but all the time, even in our Christianity, we try to bring in our own efforts as some sort of value. You know, we're a Christian and we're like, okay, I'm a Christian, but I'm a good Christian. Like I'm always at church and I tithe and I, you know, I serve the Lord and I do this and I do that and I don't cuss and all this stuff. I'm a, I'm a good Christian. So it's not even biblical. You, you need to remember your Bible and take it home and read it. That's it. good Christian, bad Christian. That's not anywhere in the Bible. You're a Christian. You are a filthy, rotten sinner, guilty before God, going to hell. Jesus died for you, rose from the dead, is alive to save you. You have new life. You're a new creation. You experience the love and acceptance of God. So it's not whether you're good or you're bad. It's you're saved. Jesus did it for you. Paul feels so strongly uh, about this paradigm shift from, from trusting in his own performance to trusting in Christ's performance. He feels so strongly about it that, that he, he really gets bummed out when somebody would want to kind of muddy that, when somebody would kind of want to complicate 
the simplicity of the fact that Christ has done it all for us. And so he deals with that in verse two. He warns his audience about some people like that. He says, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Now, don't get all tripped up on circumcision. Some of you are, some of you aren't. We don't care. God doesn't care. We don't want to know. Don't let that <laughs> trip you up, okay? That was this old Jewish thing that they did as an external sign of this covenant they had with God that it meant that they intended to keep God's Mosaic law and covenant, okay? So you're good whether you're circumcised or not. It's not the issue at hand. The issue at hand is this. These people that Paul feels so strongly about were, were devout Jews who actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were saying to people who weren't Jews, okay, if you want to come to Jesus as the Messiah, if you want to experience eternal life in him, then you've got to become a Jew first. See, there's an addition. There's something you got to do. You've got to become a Jew first. And if you want to be a Jew, you've got to get circumcised. And then you've got to obey the Mosaic law. And Paul's saying, that's evil. It is evil to put a requirement on people to experience new life and forgiveness in Christ that the Bible doesn't put on them. It is all what Christ has done. He's done it totally for us. Now, of course, we have to have faith. What does that mean? To believe. To believe in what? To believe in Christ and what he's done. To believe in what way? Just like agree with it? No, to trust in it. To trust in it. A missionary was once in a another land and he was translating the scriptures into the local dialect and he, and he was looking for a word to rightly represent faith in the local dialect and just as he's thinking about that uh, one of the locals came and came into his little hut there and obviously he was troubled and he said please may I come and lean heavily upon you and it, it occurred to him that, that that's, that's faith to lean heavily upon it's not merely to intellectually agree with who Jesus is and what he's done. It's to lean heavily upon, to put all your weight on what he's done for you on the cross, for your forgiveness, your well-being, your salvation, and for eternity. And, and so because it's, it's all of his work and none of our work, then Paul's just saying, gosh, if you add to that and say before you can experience that, you've got to do something, that's just evil. Those people are dogs and mutilators, he says. Here's the thing now, though. We do that all the time within our Christianity. It's not for salvation necessarily, but to kind of achieve like good Christian status, we do that to people all the time. Okay, you're a Christian, great. But you drink? You're a bad Christian. <laughs> Wait a minute. Didn't Jesus drink wine? Does it matter? You shouldn't as a Christian drink. You're, and so we, we create these, we add these things. You're a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Okay, but you smoke. What, 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 the, the, the issues are Christian. You see, we, we want to add all these things. Why? Because we are obsessed with performance. And what the gospel does is it pulls the rug out from underneath you in your performance orientation. It says, get over it. You performed poorly. <laughs> just nothing good. Christ has done everything for you. So get over the performance thing. 
So we do that. Okay, Christ did everything for me. Now I'm saved. But then we want to bring the performance back into it. Okay, you're saved. But if you want to be like really good saved, then you should do this and this and that. Because then what what that allows us to do is to locate our self-value and identity in comparison to others. That's what we love to do. Because, because we're not committed enough to Christ and absorbing, just like saturating ourselves in him. So we haven't really thoroughly located our identity and our security in him. So, so we need to find it by comparing ourselves to others. So if I could find a Christian that drinks more than me or smokes more than me or has more sex than me or, or has worse language than me or serves less than me, then I'm better than them. I feel good about myself. You see, you're not being true or honest to the gospel anymore. Gospel's not just salvation. Gospel's for life, for living. Pulls the rug out from underneath you in your performance-oriented, comparison-driven identity. Paul says it's evil because there's just no way that those things can possibly make us right with God. And, and, and then when we ascribe value to those things, and it actually keeps us from Christ. It keeps us from God, either coming to him initially to be saved or experiencing him. Whatever we might try to do to make things right with God, other than putting our trust in Jesus and what he's done for us, Paul calls in verse eight, garbage. He says, those things were garbage. Now, this word is a fun word. The new translation, I'm the new translation, the new American standard, God bless it, says butt rubbish. Not butt with two T's, one T, but two T's would be better. (laughs) Because the idea, it's kind of butt rubbish. Here's the word. In Greek, the word is skubala. You like that, don't you? Skubala. Why don't you say it? I know you want to. Skubala. It's fun, right? You're going to be saying that for a long time. Skubala. You might be pronouncing it wrong. It doesn't matter. It's another language. Who cares? The Greek word is skubala. And in that time, it had two basic meanings. One was kind of the, the common usage, which meant something that would be thrown out to the dogs, like on the trash pile. So it was, it was refuse. It was garbage. Then there was the other way that it was more properly used. It was used in the medical field this way. And that was to denote excrement. Poop. <laughs> the word skubala means both something that's thrown out, thrown on the trash heap, and poop. So what's a word in our language that we would use? (laughs) I had to look it up. So I went to the most authoritative, conservative, well-respected Christian Greek dictionary I could find. And it says a bunch of things in Greek. And then it says to convey the idea of this word, Paul is saying in Philippians 3.8 that that stuff is crap. Some of you are uncomfortable. Like, you can't say crap in church. It's in the Bible. <laughs> I can say whatever's in the Bible. <laughs> crap. Paul says those other things, they had to become as garbage. Crap. Now, as fun as that is, some people have tried to push it a little bit further and say, well, in the Greek, it was, it was actually stronger in that culture. It, it wasn't just... Crap, it was actually the equivalent of another four-letter word that we would use to describe excrement and stuff we would throw away. I don't know what that word is, (laughs) but I read that there's some other word that they might be referring to here. And some of us kind of are excited by that because we kind of want the Bible to cuss. (laughs) 
Like we want Paul to have said that other stuff, it's all, like we just feel good if like, we'd be like, yeah, yeah. Because then we could use it like in Greek, because if you cuss in another language, it doesn't count. Right? I grew up in Carpinteria and everyone was cussing at me in Spanish my whole life. I'm like, I don't care. Whatever. I just say it back. It didn't even, it doesn't matter if it's another language. And it's not even a four letter word. In Greek, it's seven letters. So, so it's kind of fun that maybe Paul's cussing a little bit. But then I talked to a friend of mine. Telford Work. He is a religious studies professor up at Westmont. Wonderful man. I love him very much. Brilliant man. And he's like, well, Britt, maybe Paul's not trying to cuss. Maybe Paul's not trying to be so vulgar or crude or just diss his history. Maybe the idea is this. Maybe rather what what the apostle is doing here is drawing our attention to the fact that in light of what Christ has done, All that Paul had done is something that's value has passed. Because that's that's kind of what, you know, in all seriousness, excrement is something that's passed. At one time, it was something of value, right? It was something that was taken in. It was something that was valuable. But once its time is gone and it's it, it served its purpose, then it's passed. So maybe he's just saying that that stuff isn't, he's not trying to be vulgar or crude or just distant, but in light of what Christ has done, yeah. anything that we could do, it's time has passed. It's not a value anymore because Jesus came and did it all for us. And that's why it's good news. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty good, Telford. Why are you so smart? And so in verse three, Paul says, for we worship by the spirit of God and are those who are truly circumcised, circumcised in the heart and inward transformation. We rely on what Christ has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. It's time has passed. The cross has happened. Christ has come. It's been accomplished. So everything that he might have trusted in before, he now considers those things to be scubula, our new favorite word, in order that he might gain Christ. Again in verse 8, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I, I hope you feel that way. Christian, I I hope that for you, Jesus is of infinite value. I hope he's your greatest treasure. I I hope you understand that what we gain most in the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ is, is not just that we're forgiven. It's not just that we don't feel guilty anymore. It's not just that we're changed and have a new power by the spirit to live. It's not just that when we get old and die, we're gonna have a place to go that is heaven as opposed to hell. But, But what we gain most in the gospel is Christ himself that we're actually brought to God, that we're brought into a meaningful, loving, intimate relationship. And, and Paul's saying here, the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, everything else is worthless compared to that. I hope that you feel that way. I hope you realize that the greatest gift we have in salvation is knowing Christ himself. And, I, I, and then if you don't feel that way, you would, as I do, as I am, be dealing with the things in your life that are competing for affection. 
You'd be asking yourself, why, why am I so driven to make that much money? Why, am I, why do I so need that position? Why am I holding on to this relationship? Why am I holding on to that healing, that, that, that thing? Why, why is this, why is this thing other than Jesus so dictating how I feel? I hope that you would allow the Spirit of God to compete with your affections because there's just, there's not supposed to be a lesser Jesus. There's not supposed to be a Jesus where like, oh yeah, I'm totally stoked on Jesus. It's supposed to be like, he is of infinite value. And I'm not saying I'm there. I'm saying we need to be there. He is of infinite value. And that is why Paul is able to say to them what he said in verse one. He says, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, or in other translations, finally, in summation, in light of all that's come before, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And you can hear someone when they're reading this letter in Philippi being like, you know, how's, how's Paul going to rejoice in the Lord when he's in prison? How's he so happy? Is this real? And remember the Philippian jailer was in the church now, so the Philippian jailer could be like, gosh, in Acts 16, I was actually there when he was singing songs in prison to Jesus. Like, I think he's for real about this. And then they might ask, well, how, how can I have joy? I mean, I've just been diagnosed with cancer, which happened in our church this week. We have a new cancer diagnosis. My husband just died. That happened in our church this week. Someone's husband died. He was 40 years old. How am I supposed to, what does it mean have joy? How? And you can hear the response coming from the rest of the church saying, no, 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 listen, go ahead, weep. Sorrow, grieve, we'll weep with you. We'll sorrow with you, we'll cry with you, we'll grieve with you. But just realize that what Paul is saying is rejoice in the Lord, who he is, this, this overarching fact that no matter how bad it is here, that he is still him. And he still loves us. And he's gracious and compassionate and he's on the throne. And even when it doesn't seem like it, we have this faith that says he's in control. And so rejoice in him, not in the stuff. Yeah, let's weep, let's cry, our hearts break together. But at some point, joy comes in the morning, we rejoice in the Lord, even though this is so bad. That's what he's saying. You see, that only becomes real for you to the degree that Christ is your ultimate treasure. If anything else is your treasure, when you lose it, then you're, you're, you're unnecessarily overly heartbroken. So verse eight again, he says, for Christ's sake, I, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. I think of Jim Elliott, who was that missionary flying into South America in the last century and was murdered by the Indians that he was ministering the gospel to, modern day martyr. And he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What, what's keeping you from coming to Jesus and experiencing the fullness of Jesus? You, you, you can't lose the love of God when you come to him. And there's three sorts of people around us that have a hard time realizing this, that, that haven't gotten this yet. They're all still relying on their own efforts, but in vastly different ways. And, and each one of these three different people are pursuing lesser concepts of, of what is good. The first person says, I do what I want to do, and that's enough. That person is the hedonist. 
The second person says, I do what I ought to do. And that's enough. And then that person is the moralist. The third person that hasn't realized this stuff about Jesus says, I do what I need to do, and that's enough. That, that's the religionist. Okay, the hedonist holds to an ethical theory that says pleasure is the highest good and the proper aim of life. That it's about pursuing pleasure. I do what I want to do. I do what feels good. There's so many people in our culture. I do what I want to do. You see, but the Bible speaks to that person and says two things. First of all, it says this. You know, you're never going to find ultimate pleasure, ultimate joy, apart from Jesus Christ. And then secondly, it says to the hedonists, and, and don't forget this, there, there's a standard, there's a moral standard that, that you're ignoring right now, but you're actually going to be held accountable to later. So then the moralist comes along and says, well, I hold that doing the right thing is the highest good and the proper aim of life. And so I do what I ought to do. There is a moral standard. I do what I ought to do, and that's good enough. You see, the Bible would speak to the moralist as well and say two things. First of all, it would say, well, actually, though, your standard isn't high enough. You think that you do what you ought to do, and you think you do the right thing, but in truth, your standard's not high enough compared to the standard and the righteousness of God. And the second thing the Bible would say to that person is, Really, you can't even do the most basic right thing on a consistent basis. So you're not quite as good as you think you are. And that, that would only leave the religionist. And the religionist would hold to the idea that, well, then I'm, I'm going to fulfill the right obligations and rituals and requirements, and that's what is needed. I do what I need to do to be right with God. But the Bible would speak to the religionist and say, you got to realize, though, that those things in and of themselves don't earn you anything in front of God. You think, you think going to church earns you something in front of God? You think that God looks down and says, oh, yes, he went to church. Oh, I love him now. I hated him before. I love him now. It's not, it's not even on the map. It's not even, it's not how it works. And secondly, the Bible would say to the religionists, those things that you're, continually doing, they are a never-ending burden to you that never gets you to the goal. You're just like a hamster just spinning on the wheel. Just over and over, those rituals and perceived requirements, but they never really get you to Jesus. So the Bible has bad news for each one of those people, the person who's value, valuing, overvaluing pleasure, overvaluing performance, and overvaluing obligation and ritual. It's got bad news for each of them. That's why then what Christ has done is good news for all of them. Christ is good news in what he has done for all of them because now the hedonist finds a truer and greater pleasure in Christ. And life is, isn't any longer a never-ending cycle of disappointments and dissatisfactions and disillusionment. 
because a hedonist finds a truer, greater pleasure in Christ. And, and the moralist is finally free from the burden of forever having to do well, do right, do better. Freed from that by Christ. And so life's not about keeping the rules anymore. That's so good. And the religionist is finally free from the burden of repeating ritual that never quite gets him or her there. They're going through the motions, but they're not really connecting with Christ. And they finally learn that life isn't about just working harder. It's actually about ceasing to work and trusting in the work that Christ has done. You can't do anything good enough. What Christ has done is better. What you've done is scubula in comparison. And the flip side of that coin is this. You can't do anything bad enough. You can't do anything bad enough to nullify what Christ has done for you on the cross. Some of you, you're, you're not Christians and you're hearing like, Brett, I, I hear what you're saying, but you don't know what I've done. You're right, I don't know what you've done. 90% chance I've done worse. But God knows what you've done. And you can't outdo the love of God and the cross of Christ. There's nothing you can do that's bad enough for him not to forgive because he gave the ultimate price in his son for you. And, and some of you Christians too, you, you just feel like a failure in your Christianity. And you just think, gosh, if I only did better and if I stopped doing this and if I started doing that. And, and see, somehow you think that God would love you more, but he, he, he can't love you more. You know how God loves us? as he loves his son, Jesus. Because as our passage says, we're now in Christ. So in the same way that God loves Christ, he loves you. He can't love you anymore. He cannot love you anymore. But somehow we think, if I, if I only stopped doing this, if I only started doing that, things would be better between me and God. Listen, he can't love you anymore. He can't give you any more grace. He's giving you all the grace in the world. In his son, Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean we don't have to repent. Some of you here and you're not Christians, oh, I've done so much bad stuff. I, I'm, I'm seeing that. You, you, you need to repent. You need to actually say to God, okay, God, I've been wrong. I'm sorry. I, I, I want to be done with that. You're right. You gave your son for me. I trust in that. I lean on that. I believe in that. Forgive me of my sins. According to what Christ did on the cross, he's going to do that. Others of you, you're Christians and you, you still need to repent for your own well-being, for the glory of God. Nothing you can do, though, could change what Christ has done for you. That's Christianity. Amen? Amen? Thank you for these beautiful things, God. Thank you for these beautiful things. Holy Spirit, we need you to come and minister the truth and the depth and the glory of the gospel to our hearts. I pray that even in this moment, men and women would cry out upon you to be saved, believing, trusting for the first time ever in what you've done for them, repenting of their sins. Pray that you flood them full of grace. We pray that you flood them full of grace. And we ask the Holy Spirit, you'd come and pour the love of the Father out on all of our hearts and we just have a greater experience of who Jesus is. Lord, compete with our affections. Bring us to the place where we could say, that knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, is of infinite value. By faith, we believe you to be the greatest treasure. Work it out in our life, God. 
Prayer team and pastors are up here to help you if you need any help. Communion is here. You can come and get on your face before the Lord. Pray with one another. Let's experience Jesus together.